2: exciting for us. So you you like books, don't you? Who, me? Yeah. Do you like musical theatre
3: or not? No, I'm not a big musical theatre fan. I don't
2: believe it, right? Matt was a big fan (laughs) of musical theatre. I'm constantly having to deal with people. Nikki doesn't like musical theatre and she's
1: vegetarian and she likes cycling. All of those things are very complementary. Well, I like cycling.
3: How do you feel about musical theatre, John?
1: I like musical theatre. There's there's a
3: couple of musical theatre productions I like. Which are?
1: I'm not as you know, crazed about it as Andy, but then few are quite like
0: Joseph.
2: Mm. Oh yeah, the the, the training bra of musicals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's where I
2: got. Yeah, on. Got, yeah and, and what else? Uh,
0: Grease, Rocky Horror. Yeah,
2: Grease is quite good. Rocky Horror's awful.
3: What yeah, I mean, I, I like it for its shitness.
2: Okay, well, you've got mm-hmm. you, it's a bottomless. Uh,
3: Apart from that, I'm less interested. Right. Right. Remember that banging?
2: Don't yeah. the table. That was our producer's note. The new era begins with being told <laughs> not to smack
0: the table. most
1: that cheering content. for emphasis. Yeah. Shall we start then? Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that brings new life to old books. Today, thanks to the generosity of our sponsors, <laughs> <laughs> Unbound, the website roller. where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read, you find us bunked up in a grimy bedsit in Brighton, surrounded by wigs and hair tonic, looking out across a grey, wintry sea. <laughs> the smell of stale cooking
2: fat hanging heavy in the air. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of the Year of Reading Dangerously. Uh, I live by the sea, in fact, in <laughs> remarkably similar circumstances to those, to those pastiched by my Hell friend John. you, sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, joining us today is the writer and critic Jennifer Hodgson. Hello, Jennifer. Hello. Or Jen, as I'm going to call you Jen, yeah, please,
3: end. please do. On the yeah. other
2: side of the petition wall.
3: Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Um... Uh, Jen has written for The Guardian, The New Statesman, The White Review, and was a research fellow with the Hearing the Voice project at Durham University and UK editor at Dalkey Archive Press. And she's recently edited a volume called The Unmapped Country, which is a collection of unpublished stories and pieces by the 1960s radical writer Anne Quinn, published by our friends at And Other Stories. And it's the first novel by the very same Anne
1: Quinn, Berg, first published in 1964, which Jen is here to talk about with us today.
2: We Before we get on to that, uh, there are two things I would like to housekeeping, mention. Andy. Housekeeping, housekeeping. If you are listening to this on Monday, March the 5th, 2018. Um, Back in the 21st century. On Wednesday, on the coming Wednesday, March the 7th, there is an event at Burley Fisher Books in Dalston in North London, devoted to David Seabrook's book, All the Devils Are Here, which we featured on Backlisted a couple of years ago and has just been reissued by our friends at Grant Books. And appearing at that event will be um, Rachel Cook, who was our guest on that podcast, the writer Ian Sinclair, the filmmaker Paul Tickell, and... Most interestingly, from our point of view, the book's editor, Neil Belton, and I think this is the first occasion that Neil's ever talked about publicly about what it was like working on All the Devils Are Here. That's going to be chaired by another former guest, Travis Elborough, and at least one of us will be there, and it'll probably be me. Uh, so um, I might come too. Well... Clearly, it's quite a thing for a book that came out 15 years ago. And this feeds into the book we're talking about today to have a moment now, 15 years later, where people have discovered it and enough people are interested to, to make this kind of thing possible. Quite a lot of thematic crossover. Quite so, yes. Jen, what is it like having a book which superficially, perhaps, one would think, well, that'll probably appeal to quite a, a niche group of people. Mm. The book that you edited, The Unmapped Country, these fragments of Anne Quinn's work, has been widely reviewed and talked about. And I feel that we here on Batlisted are joining a kind of moment of Quinn mania.
3: <laughs> welcome to Quinn mania. <laughs> You're that, very welcome.
2: Is that what you expected?
3: Uh, totally not. I mean, I've got to say... I basically sat in a cupboard for seven years researching Anquin. So the fact that I'm allowed out into public to speak to other human beings about her now is still incredible to me. No, it's not at all what I expected. Although, you know, There's been a a kind of low level of interest in Quinn amongst kind of initiates and perverts for for some time. (laughs) (laughs) But um, like what we We, are. We have
1: both of them here.
3: But but, uh, no, I I don't think I ever expected the kind of enthusiasm and the kind of engagement that it's got from readers. It's been ace. It's brill.
2: And we should also say well done and other stories yeah. for putting this book out there. And mm. also, like you were saying to me, they've sold out their first print run in a fortnight. Yeah,
3: right? in less than a fortnight, I should say, yeah. And absolutely. That's
2: really, really good. It just goes to show you, while we're having these conversations or conversations are taking place about the crisis in literary fiction, which we talked about on this podcast mm. before, we're treated with a degree of... Um, Contempt. Con- <laughs> yes. Yeah. Contempt. It's all very well saying on one level. So clearly, some appetite... Isn't there, but on the other hand, look at this. This book sold out in a fortnight and is available again now. At the time of speaking, of course, but
3: <laughs> um, I think um, the appetite's always been there, yeah. I think it's been radically underestimated by publishers, critics, that kind of thing. It yeah, hasn't,
1: mainstream yeah. literary establishment have always had an issue with it, yeah. And there was perhaps a moment we maybe talk about this further mm. on in the podcast. There was maybe a moment in the 60s when it was more acceptable.
3: Reading the reviews of Quinn from the 60s, I would hazard that actually um, it wasn't that acceptable back yeah. then. The reviews are so hostile oh, okay. and so furious about experimental mm. fiction. Yeah. They see it as a kind of like absolute existential threat, as a kind of like French flu that's come over here to like <laughs> harm our way of life with its intellectual decadence. <laughs> you know, and that that attitude is sort of, to a greater or lesser extent, it has persisted. Has persisted. Yeah. Um But not amongst readers.
1: You're exactly right that the the readers, the readers have never had a problem with this. The problem is publishers finding a way to economically get those books into the hands of those readers. And that's been the the challenge. So we
2: should commend And Other Stories for that. We should also commend And Other Stories for what they're doing this year, which is they're publishing only books by female writers this year.
1: Which is amazing. Great. Mm.
2: You know, so... um, well, we'll come back to Anne Quinn okay. uh, in a moment. But first, John, you know, I, have I have to, to ask, ask you. you.
1: I have to ask oh, are you. Oh, gonna... you can ask me? Well, I don't know. What <laughs> do you fair. think? Should you want to... I do mine first? I think said, yeah. yeah. Well, um, John,
2: what have you been reading this I week? I have
1: been reading this week a book which will not sound, perhaps... <laughs> Uh, As as good as it is,
2: Um, the 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 Weidenfeld Press office. I think I heard a shot. Go on. I mean,
3: Jen's face. It's called
1: Yorkshire: A Lyrical History of England's Greatest County. If I didn't know the author of this book as well as I do, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go near it in a million. It just sort of isn't what I. It's not what I want really. It sort of has that. It has that horrible feeling. It's quite a nice jacket. It's roseberry topping, but. Richard Morris is a polymath and a genius and is somebody I've known for, um, 20 years. He is an archaeologist. He was, he led the archaeological digs on York Minster, some of which he talks about in this book. But he is also a composer and he is, he's one of those people who is just unfailingly interesting about almost anything he writes about. This book is not what it says on the cover, really. It's a, a strange, Mysterious collection of family stories. I mean, he's, I don't want to oversell it. He's not Zabalt, you know, but he is an archae- working archaeologist in his ability to read and look at the long, the long history. For me, perhaps with, with my kind of, uh, QI hat on. It's just full of wonderful uh, insights. The idea that Yorkshire started 500 million years ago,
3: <laughs> 3,000
1: miles south of the equator. You want to say, <laughs> suck on that, Jeffrey. Boycott. <laughs> you know, so, and it's just full of, of wonderful, different ways of looking at it. He's very good on writers. There's, a, there's a, a classic little sort of insight is that the reason that so many houses in Yorkshire are called Windy Ridge <laughs> and there are lots of them. Is that there was a 1911 massive bestseller by a writer called William Riley called Windy Ridge, which went on to sell over half a million copies. And it became a kind of a cult. It was about a a photographer who leaves the the sallow, sort of depressing streets of London and discovers the glories of Yorkshire. It's very unlike what you would expect. It's not a standard county history. There's masses of archaeology in it. He's got this brilliant ability to make you see things differently. He talks a lot about mining. He he, he makes the point early on in the book, mining communities never last very long. Because, you know, by the 1950s, most of the Orchard kit Coalfield had already been exhausted. Uh, it's just that ability to sort of focus, Paul, and move you in and give you
2: sort of... Um, good, good news for, for fans of future Bat-listed episodes, Windy Ridge is in print. <laughs> uh, from, uh, I've just looked it up on my phone. It's in print from Northern Heritage Publications. <laughs> of course. Of course it is. There's a lot. There's an amazing chapter
1: about... Whitby, which he says people mm. from, from Yorkshire always like Whitby. He said Whitby wasn't so keen on the rest of Yorkshire. He said there's an interesting <laughs> yeah. thing about the coast. People from Whitby were much closer to Edinburgh or London because mm. the moors behind, they were really difficult to get across. Um, so it, it's, there's no structure to it. He dips in and out, and but the Yorkshire the Yorkshire arty as you might call it Blake Morrison and Andrew Martin (laughs) have both given it fantastic I read Andrew Martin's
2: review I must say uh, Andrew's uh, review was terrific (sighs) made it sound really interesting book
1: I'll give you just one little paragraph this is the end from the end of that where he's done this sort of collapsing of of perspective uh, and says that so it was because he's very good also on the fact that you know that multi-ethnic yorkshire now it's a very different place and he doesn't make any big he just says this is what yorkshire is now it's changing it's always changed the roman empire was run from york at one point it's hard for us to imagine that now so it was that after two thousand years of looking east and north from yorkshire the world on that rainy saturday this is a a rainy saturday uh, when a, a reconnaissance aircraft in 1963 the cuban missile crisis was shot down On that rainy Saturday was one phone call away from a time when rocks and stones shall strike together and short-eared owls will come to roost in the ruins of Bawtry Hall. But the telephone did not ring, and the prick of conscience window in All Saints North Street is still there, performing its original duty of alerting visitors to what will happen at the end of time. Go and look. Go while you can. Better, go when the glass is lit by October sun and stones melt as falling stars hit the ground. So that's the, the lyrical bit. He's like a sort of kind of 21st century Thomas Brown, Sir Thomas Brown. You know, he's just a collector. He collects his family stories. He collects amazing bits of forgotten lore and weaves them together into what is, I think, I, I would have called this, I would have published this in a different way. It, it, it seems that it's already number one in the in its category on Amazon, so I was... Almost certainly would have been almost certainly wrong, but well, I just think we, we for those of those people who would uh, the walk, past, who the would pa- walk the past a book called Yorkshire, what he brings to to the story of Yorkshire is I think nobody else could do it in quite this way. Really
2: interesting book. But now,
1: <laughs> yes. Andy, the big one, the big one.
2: What have you been? Your reading? your best book of the year so far. Well, my best book of the year so far. Yes, so. Uh, I read this last week in about three or four hours, and it's a cliche to say I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. That's a literally, factually accurate thing. Once I started reading it, I couldn't stop reading it until I finished it. It's called You Could Do Something Amazing With Your Life, open brackets, you are Raoul Mote, close brackets. And it's by a writer called Andrew Hankinson. This is his first book. And it won um, CWA non-fiction... Dagger Award. It's the story of Raoul Mote who in 2010 shot three people and after a long standoff was in turn himself shot by police. I saw the writer Melissa Harrison talking about it and on Twitter she said she'd been moving some books about and she found her copy of this book. And she'd just been reminded about what an incredible book it is. And I thought, oh, I've got that to read. I think I'll read that. And it was one of those wonderful moments. John Niven as well said, of the spontaneity one of spontaneity of thinking, I wonder what this is like. Mm. And then four hours later, putting it down, going, wow. What Andrew Hankinson does is tell you Raoul Moat's story from the point of view, as far as it can be reconstructed, of Raoul Moat. And he does it in a way which I would have thought, as a writer myself, was very high risk, <laughs> which is he, first of all, creates an internal monologue some of the time. Second of all, he structures it as a countdown, an eight-day countdown of the last eight days of Raoul Mote's life. And I'm just going to read you the opening, because this will give you... Um, You'll see why I couldn't put this down. Page 1. A questionnaire arrives from the Regional Department of Psychotherapy. There are 17 pages of questions. They want you to complete your answers and send it back before your first appointment with a psychologist. It's 2008. You sit in the house and write your surname, first name, date of birth, address, age and telephone number... On the next page, you describe your symptoms. I feel tired, anxious, isolated, helpless, angry. I find it difficult to sleep or relax. It asks how these symptoms affect your life. You write, They stop my life from progressing constructively. I am aggressive and violent outside the home if provoked. It asks why you think this happens. You write about the bad parts of your childhood, police harassment having no family support, worrying about your children's future and feeling alone. On the next page, it says, it would help us to know something of your background. Could you tell us something about your childhood and family, including any changes or separations that you experienced? Were any relationships especially important to you, for example, with brothers, sisters, grandparents, aunts or uncles? You write, look, I'm now really pissed off because these questions should be discussed in person, away from my misses and kids so they don't have to see me wound up about things I choose not to think about. I can express myself better in person and see this as totally dismissive and uncaring and was about to chuck these forms in the bin but wrote this because I need the help. It's going to take an effort for me to do all this, so contact me and I'll discuss whatever you want. I do not wish to discuss my life with paper. You turn the page. It asks you how you expect the treatment to help and what form you imagine it taking. I have no idea. Knowing my luck, it will be all straitjackets, electricity to the head and a cage. The final page asks for any other information. You leave it blank. You send the questionnaire back to them. A few days later, a letter arrives. You've got an appointment with a trainee clinical psychologist on April two thousand 2008. You don't attend. Another letter arrives. It says they don't normally reschedule appointments but they know this is hard for you so they're offering you another appointment it's on May the 13th 2008 you don't attend you are discharged from the waiting list 2 years later you shoot 3 people and shoot yourself you will be called a monster you will be called evil the prime minister david cameron will stand up in parliament and say you were a callous murderer end of story You have nine days and your whole life to prove you are more than a callous murderer. Go. Brilliant. I I read that to you. I have goosebumps on the back of my hands as I read it because I know what's going to happen. In a sense, you know what's going to happen because you sort of will remember the story. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It manages to do that thing of taking uh, a story that you think you might know, Presenting it to you in a different way, humanising somebody that all manner of people sought not to humanise while he was alive. It's been controversial because even that act is seen as being disrespectful to the the the, the people that he shot. Um, there is a strong implication of police collusion towards the end of the book. Stroke the standoff with Raul Motes. I also have subsequently found out that this book hasn't perhaps had the attention that it deserves, it hasn't perhaps sold in the quantity it deserves, I strongly, I use this platform <laughs> for good. And I urge you to, to read this book. It's C- published by correcting scribe Publishing's Wrongs. So. Well, and I know, you know, these, you have this rare it, I tell you, it's a really privilege to be able to just enthuse about stuff that we love. And I, I found reading this such an exciting experience. So <laughs> it's called You Could Do Something Amazing With Your Life, you Are Raoul Moat. It's by Andrew Hankinson. There you go. Brilliant. It seems remarkable to me that, that the,
1: the Raoul Moat incident has produced two, I think, really significant pieces of what we can only describe as art. The podcast Wrathband, A Digital tra- Tragedy, which won the BBC Audio inaugural, I think, BBC Audio Podcast Award. Is also an amazing, harrowing, brilliantly, uh, and again in its own way quite experimental in the way that it it deals with a, a, a the, the, the tragedy of those nine days and the aftermath, obviously for David Rathband, who ended up
2: taking his own life, the policeman who was blinded by Moat. The thing about this but, book, I would just want to add, is is that Andrew Hankinson does fundamentally he does two very brave things. The first thing is. You know, setting the book up in the way that I've just described and then pulling it off, right? That is a yeah. brave artistic achievement. Yeah. But the second thing that he does that is worth saying is he also makes a moral judgment near the end of the book. Interesting. Um, which he didn't. Which he wouldn't necessarily it, he have to do. The, does he keep in the third person throughout the book? Is that is that kind kind of? Yeah. Uh, well, the the thing that really makes the book, although I was gripped by it, is uh, and this isn't a spoiler, really. <laughs> <laughs> the story, the ends. story, in, yeah, but it doesn't end there. Okay, he does a really brilliant final chapter where he tells Raul Moats what happened to him after he died, reputationally oh, I've got, I've so and physically. It. It's, it's and such he, a good book.
1: Has he written before? You know what it slightly reminds me of. You know, you know the Alexander Masters, Stuart um, a life lived backwards. Another and, wonderful book. And the other, remember the one we did about the the diary. That well, book's incredible yeah, as which, well. Which is, it's just that thing of doing something formally audacious in order to unlock the material, which is, I have to say, pretty germane to
2: what we're about to talk about.
1: Well, has he written anything else?
2: No, no. He's a he, he's a journalist. This is his first book. Wow. It has that feeling of, yeah. I, I may or may not do this yeah, again, yeah, so yeah. I'm I'm putting everything into this book. Which is pretty good. uh, It's a pretty good segue uh, into. (laughs)
1: Let's do that again. (laughs) Let's pick this up again shortly. Listen closely as a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. Mm. It's
0: like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. This episode is brought to you by Etsy.
2: Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
0: It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
2: So, we've comprehensively covered what we've been reading. We, just haven't, we haven't just been reading those things. We've also been reading, thanks to uh, Jennifer, our guest, we've been reading Anne Quinn. Felt,
1: thanks, by the way, because, I mean, I hadn't read any Anne Quinn, and I, now I've read... Uh, well, I've read a third of the novels that she published, and <laughs> and I've read uh, quite a few of the stories. But what what, a, what, what just what a revelation! What, is this not? Yeah, that's, that's, the, theme, that's the sort of theme tune. Ch- like, that's
2: the backlisted theme tune, okay. ch- though. Isn't well, it?
1: Know, how do we start for
3: I know, a photo? Yeah, that's been lots of people's responses, though. They've been taking photographs of uh, pages with their phones and posting them on Twitter and saying, like, how do people not know that this person exists? You know,
1: how it's the question we always well,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, how how did you? Uh,
3: ah, uh, nice Ann, segue. Anne Ann, <laughs> Ann, Ann Quinn's
2: representative here in the physical realm. Oh. How did you? When did you first encounter her work?
3: Do you know what Anne Quinn was on the syllabus at my university? I studied her as part of my university degree. I,
1: I trow that that was neither Oxford nor Cambridge. No,
3: it was UEA. Uh, it was UEA. So UEA um, was great in the sense that I um, I really got into that mid-century moment of uh those weird mildewy sorts of novels by people like Patrick Hamilton uh, Elizabeth Bowen Muriel Spark people like that and um yeah and so I came across uh Berg Berg is usually everyone's gateway drug into Quinn except for now the stories but um yeah I started reading Berg and I was just really ripe for it you know for me, like as long as I'd been interested in books, I'd also always had the sense that somehow they weren't really for me, that this wasn't really my culture. And I, I read Berg, and, you know, as a weird girl from Hull, I thought, this is a bit of me, this. This is a bit of me. Yeah, it really uh, spoke to me in a way that I mean, lots of other things hadn't.
1: It's, it's interesting you say that, because I, I did feel like it's every... The seaside town, possibly Brighton, but it's every mm. seaside town, every that liminal sort mm. of sense of it being I a mean divinal. A divinal. yeah careful there I mean strictly speaking,
3: strictly speaking Hull is an estuarine city rather than a seaside town is it yeah it's on the Humber estuary however lots of good
1: Richard Morris very good on Hull
3: yeah, yeah well, being from Hull was actually why I kind of pulled a first when you showed yeah. me that book because you know there's a certain kind of an antipathy between Hull and the rest of Yorkshire because yeah. of Humber side etc anyway back to the point in hand <laughs> So part of my part of, from the northeast, I part of my, I yeah, but part well. of my interest in Berg was to do with the seaside in fact because yeah. i i spent a lot of time when I was growing up in a 12-foot torah caravan with um all the rest of my family so for the entire summer holidays we'd just be free range on a campsite on the east coast so the seaside has always been something that I've just been totally compelled and fascinated by and seeing a book like this that was sort of weird and grimy and about the seaside and was was by a writer who's you know, a fairly singular figure, a woman, an experimental writer, working class, British, who else? Who uh, else is yeah, there? Okay. Who I mean, else yeah. is there?
1: Yeah, you do feel like a, a massive set of boxes being being brilliantly ticked.
2: Now, we, we, we so we normally ask, uh, you know, as we say, where did you first encounter this writer? Mm. Where did you first encounter this book? We were going to be joined today by the novelist Lee Rourke. Um, and uh, he um, was unable to join us in the end because he couldn't escape from South End. <laughs> uh, uh, Talking of but, uh, but I hope Lee is listening to this. And he he has been a long-time champion of Indeed. Berg and of Anne yeah, Quinn. Absolutely. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read. Um, we really wanted to have Lee's voice here as part of this particular podcast. He wrote a piece for The Independent eight years ago in their book of a lifetime slot. And I'm just going to read what he says about it. Because I think it sets up the book that we're going to talk about and also Anne Quinn and and. It answers the question, where did you first encounter this book? So Lee writes, I first came to read Anne Quinn's Mesmerising Berg by accident in 2001. I was browsing a favourite bookshop in Brighton, looking for rare editions of Blaise Sandra. When I asked the bookseller if he stocked anything by Sandra, he simply shook his head and held up a calder edition of Quinn's Berg. Have you ever read Anne Quinn? he asked me. No, who's Anne Quinn? I answered. I had only to read the first line to become hooked. A man called Berg, who changed his name to Greb, came to a seaside (laughs) town intending to kill his father. I took the book home with me that night, and by the end of the month, I had read everything Anne Quinn had written, which in those days was quite a difficult task, as Calder editions were hard to find. Jen is nodding wildly. Berg, 1964, is one of Quinn's four novels. The others are three, 1966, Passages, 1969, and Triptychs, 1972. I like all of them, but I guess it's Berg that has had the longest-lasting influence on me as a writer. Berg is a sumptuous novel that cuts to the heart of things. It's a debut that still feels as modern as anything published today, and although it's clearly Quinn's own pin to the nouveau Roman novelist she loved and admired, it still manages to contain it still manages to contain its own unique and quintessentially British voice that is both recognisable and hauntingly peculiar. Berg is a wintry seaside novel that is Freudian, Oedipal and steeped in Greek tragedy, but also a heady mix of the postmodern, grotesque, and the macabre, in which a ventriloquist dummy is brutally mutilated (laughs) and the British novel is subtly unravelled. There's a, well, Lee, that's so nice. And put together again amid an ethereal tale of loss and displacement. I've often thought that the modern novel wastes far too much time crafting a reality it can never attain. Even the new wave of realist novels which cleverly mess around and turn inside out the same reality they they desperately cling to often stall and create nothing new as a result. Berg simply eschews the superfluous dilly-dallying of our established humanistic tradition and cuts straight to place, movement and time, creating a mode of fiction that slices into its reader's psyche like a scalpel into the heart. The prose of Berg is intense, off-key and sometimes odd, but also effortless and free of baggage. It takes the reader to places most novelists could only dream of, both quicker and with surgeon-like precision to boot. I truly feel that it's one of the great British novels, eerily depicting a seamier side of Brighton. Quinn lived and died there, swimming out to sea and never coming back in 1973. That can still be felt today, especially on cold, dark, wintry nights, the sea crashing onto the pebbles just below the ageing esplanade. Berg should be read by everyone, <laughs> if only to give us a glimpse of what the contemporary British novel could be like. Now, among, amidst Job the... S- yeah. What a terrific... That's, <laughs> then That's the end of the podcast, because <laughs> I think that's... Lee has taken care of it for us, but actually, that he sort of says at the end there—that mm. thing that he says about giving a glimpse of what the contemporary British novel could be like—sort mm. of goes back to what we were talking about oh, earlier. You know, totally. the success of your book of of uh, Quinn's writing and the sense that there is a moment now of mm. people discovering things that had lain <laughs> fallow for fifty years is because people sort of want this writing now. You know, and they can get it in a way that perhaps they haven't been able to.
3: Mm. There's something in the water at the moment. You know, There's so many writers around now who I think must have read Quinn. They must kind of recognise uh, her as one of their predecessors, and they—they they haven't. People like Claire Louise Bennett um, yeah. or Emma McBride, yeah. people like that. Uh, also, you know Deborah Levy, who's also been a been a kind of champion of Quinn's work. But sometimes they haven't read her. Yeah, they I haven't read I her, and it seems unthinkable.
1: Jesse Greengrass, I think you know, it's—it's it's so interesting to me because it's. It, I, I mean, thinking. I mean, one, like I said. I, what a, I mean—it's so great to have a, a, to read a book, a, a proper, fully formed masterpiece, which you haven't read. And I, mm. I think this book is is all of all it has, as Lee said, everything it takes to to, to be that. But it also seems to me to it's a, it, a strain of fiction that I think you go back to Murphy, Beckett's Murphy. Mm. That there is a mm. there is a kind of. That, that strain of experimentalism in, 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 I mean, I think I always think of Murphy as an English novel because it was sort of set in, in London, it was written, mm. by, but it's also, it's, it's brilliant. It's Camus as well, isn't it? It's mm. that sort of internalised, you know, the plotting to kill the father. It carries all of the symbolic weight incredibly lightly. I, I, mm. Mostly when I think about the, the book, having re- recently finished it, is those two rooms, That have got a partition between them, Mm. and we'll talk a little bit. I mean, the plot of the the novel is is I mean, I think Lee's kind of yeah. It's about a man trying to kill his father, without giving too many spoilers
2: away. Jen, do you want to read us something so we can hear uh, the voice?
3: Sure. um what I'll, um, what I'll do is I'll read you... Um, well, I'll provide a kind of introduction to Alistair Berg slash uh, Greb <laughs> um, to give you Hi. an idea. Ali, to Hi. give you a, a kind of um, a notion of what this dissolute hair tonic salesman's like. Okay. <laughs> Berg slowly dressed, each item of soiled clothing chainmailing his limbs part by part until at last his head sprouted out, a hedgehog with eyes that darted from left to right. Alistair Berg, alias Greb, Commercial traveller, seller of wigs, hair tonic, paranoiac paramour, do you plead guilty? Yes. Guilty of all things the human condition brings. Guilty of being too committed. Guilty of defending myself, of defrauding others. Guilty of love, loving too much or not enough. Guilty of parochial actions, of universal wish fulfillments, of conscious martyrdom, of unconscious masochism. Idle hours, fingers that meddle. Alistair Charles Humphrey Greb. Alias Berg, you are condemned to life imprisonment until such time you may prove yourself worthy of death. Maybe before, but yes, definitely before entering this place. Perhaps even prior to that fateful day when seeing the photograph of the old man, it had started. The staring of the insect between throat and heart. But what precisely are you proposing to do now? Yes, you, a pauper who will soon be living off national assistance, digging purple toes into threadbare rugs, eyes avoiding the streaks of grease around the gas ring, the dust on the bottles, the chest of drawers, the cracked enamel pot, the crack that runs from one corner to another where the wallpaper ends in a map of Italy. Did these surroundings add up to anything? Had they a separate existence? Say I decided to leave, would they mean nothing, absolutely nothing? if I could completely wipe out the man of yesterday. What did others do to eradicate the past? But then he had hardly been on intimate enough terms with anyone to know what they might or might not do in a similar situation. Besides, hadn't he always taken himself for granted, creatures of habit, chained to environment, hereditary complaints and complexes? Had the convolution he was now in merely been transferred, destined to rotate the same way? He sat by the window, the sun now hidden by fistfuls of clouds. I relate myself to that. The dismembered trees, half broken walls, roofs with slates ready to fall off, and the people below with their masks of indifference. And yet I am aware of an urge to break through them all. God. Yeah, it's pretty hard call that bit. The thing is, <laughs>
2: the, the intensity of it is truly not overwhelming. That's not the right word. You have um, to read it slowly. Yeah. A really? yes. Yeah.
3: And it gets more intense. That was one of the things um, that struck me rereading it over the last week to come on here. I'd almost forgotten quite what a, like a kind of cacophony it is towards the end. After after the the kind of middle section with the sorry, spoilers no, no a no, there's a middle section with a kind of classic party scene, a kind of like mm. world upside down yeah. fireworks mm-hmm. party where everything kind of goes And he's not, tits the, up. the creeping tendrils mm-hmm. and yeah, the drugs. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the, that's the other um passage I had marked to read yeah. the kind of tendrils and the hot house and the claustrophobia. And then it just swirls and swirls and swirls and has this incredible momentum towards the end. And I'd forgotten quite how dynamic it was in that in that respect,
1: I mean, it's it's you know, it goes without saying. It's a book you're not going to get you're not going to get an eighth of it. I think, on in terms of the, the kind of the patterning of it, it's, it's it's it strikes me as an astonishing first novel. Yeah, um, well
3: it wasn't her first, see No, it wasn't No, yes. she wrote two others but she burnt them yeah. She wrote one called Oscar and one called A Slice of the Moon and she, she burnt them almost immediately And she
1: was living hand to mouth as well
3: Yeah, while she was writing Berg she was working as a secretary at the Royal College of Art for the head yeah. of painting there So she would sit in uh, her bedsit at uh, a typewriter until two in the morning and just type it out
1: Yeah, I mean it, there's a very like essay in the Country that she wrote about her, about her life I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, the intensity and the, the, the sort of the that kind of commitment to art and to to, to self-expression, which mm. is incredibly
2: powerful.
3: Uh, as soon as the money came in for Berg, the, the advances, she got herself a fellowship. She buggered off to the States. She did, right? Yeah, yeah so she heads off to the States, yeah. doesn't she? Yeah, and she, like in the States, she was kind of embraced as kind of an American language poet, right? So she thought of herself as a poet. She, a, she, she had didn't had think had of herself as a poet. She to, did, uh, and, and w- one with Robert Sward as well. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, I mean, she comes across as an, as obviously incredibly intense but fantastically impressive human being. I mean, mm. it, But you're left at the end of, uh, of your uh, collection thinking... It's just a shame that she didn't live longer to write write
2: more. Before we go back to Berg, I'd like Mm. to come back to Berg in a minute. I just want to ask you, the process of putting together The Unmapped Country, Mm. which you have very deliberately subtitled Stories and Fragments... How long did it take you to put it together? And was it all sitting in a, a kind of in a box file somewhere? Or did you have to pull it in from...
3: <laughs> was it hack? <laughs>
2: did you have to put an advert in the exchange in heck? Mart saying, well, does anyone have any Anne Quinn stuff?
3: Yeah, I mean... I wasn't working on it full time for seven years, because that would be mental, but I was working on it off and on for seven years because Mm. the thing is right, Anne Quinn hasn't got an archive as yet. If anyone wants to contact me about putting together an Anne Quinn archive, please do. This is amazing, I find. But she hasn't got an archive. So her letters are with the Calderon Boyers archive over in the States, Uh, her letters between her and her publisher. Everything else was scattered between here, the US and New Zealand. Right. So I had to just kind of cold call ex-boyfriends, old mates she also had a confidant called Father Brockard Sewell who was a Carmelite friar in East Finchley (laughs) who was very, very much involved with the countercultural demi monde in the 60s. You know, he was a confidant to people involved in the Christine Keeler stuff and and he had a bunch of stuff. Unfortunately, he he died a few years back but the archivist at the friary gave me some stuff. There were her old mates from the commune she lived um, on in New Mexico. Larry Goodall um, Mm. who's been very active in keeping her legacy alive. He provided me with stuff it came from all over the place. It was kind of detective work. It was someone mentions someone who mentions someone, and then I write to them or I phone yeah. them out of the blue and I say, "Hey, you remember your mate from fifty years ago? I just suppose you've got anything hanging around."
2: <laughs> I think the thing about the book, which you deserve huge credit for, is given how diffuse the material was physically, mm. you know, but also how it pulls in all different types of writing. I suspect one of the things that I, I and John both felt about reading the finished book is it really feels like a book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It really hangs together. You feel yeah. you are being taken through a very deliberate series of stages of someone's um, artistic development. Yeah. Was that, re- that must have been very exciting as an editor when you realised that the book was coming together as a book rather than as just a a kind of repository of pieces of of stuff
3: yeah I've I've always been adamant while working on the project that this wasn't just offcuts this isn't just like the sort of you know the stuff that wouldn't go anywhere else Quinn's entire body of work is completely fragmentary her novels are, are made up of fragments it wasn't that difficult to sort of follow her line of development you know she started off very much a kind of British noir kind of kind of mode of writing and then she moved through to kind of the French experimentation and by the end you know she's doing the the crazy burrows stuff and then she what's interesting with it is in the the last piece which is called The Unmapped Country she go, kind of goes back to realism and she produces mm. this sort of trenchant critique of mental health care mm-hmm. which she herself had experience of so her own writing life followed an arc that I just traced really it was quite easy to to build a kind of collection with that, that I, I found
2: I found that at the the unmapped country itself. I found that quite a hard read, mm. quite a distressing.
0: Yeah, read. Yeah, very, uh, yeah. I mean,
2: artistically very, you know, focused. Yeah. That's not what I mean. Yeah. I, I mean, it just clearly because you're feeding into it some knowledge about what what came. She's gone about. back mm. to a more naturalistic
1: style to, to tell that story. Yeah.
2: And she writes. I mean, she again, she writes. Brilliantly about depression, I think. Yeah. Um, Shall we listen to uh, you mentioned Larry Goodall, the poet? Yeah. So, a couple of years ago, Larry Goodall put um, up on Bandcamp mm. this recording of Anne Quinn reading from Three, which mm. is her second novel. Yeah. Uh, this was done in the late 1960s. Larry Goodall uh, says that he recorded this on a reel to reel tape recorder. It was in Placitas, New Mexico, where mm. I lived and where she was staying. And all I want to say before we play this, Jen, is you referred to uh, Quinn as a working-class writer. Let's just have a listen to that clip now.
0: (laughs) Okay. He stood in the archway of white. On one side, the paint unpeeled in thin layers ran into yellow crevices. He fondled a statue, the hands of heavy quarry stone, with his fists, ran his finger down, between, up again from one to another until he reached the summer house. Shutting the glass door carefully, he leaned there, sighing, and looked round. In front of the television, she turned pages of a magazine, her hand bound by a handkerchief. She slid her feet out of mules, brought them up under a cushion, looked now and then at the screen. Her mouth puckered, eyes red, which she rubbed, cleaned her spectacles, breathed on slowly, held to the light reached for a cigarette, the pistol lighter, the metal shiny part she stroked, put down and jumped up, opened the door, switched on all the lights in every ground-floor room, opened all the doors, moved from room to room, switched off all the lights, left the doors open, and crouched in front of the television. The cat curled at her feet, she caressed him with her toes. <laughs>
2: The authentic voice of the uh, working class there. <laughs> in that,
0: in you,
1: the, were taught, the, you were taught RP in those
3: days. Yeah, um, I mean, she does write about it in the, in the first yeah. piece in the collection. Um, she was sent to a convent school so she could talk to, proper. Know, know to talk proper. Yeah.
2: One of the things that I was struck by in Berg and in the pieces in the Unmapped Country is her willingness to find a way of writing about what she wanted to write about in an era when women writing about some of those subjects was extremely unusual, Mm. right? So there's a strong sexual element Mm. to her work. There's also kind of... um, Very strong in Berg. Yeah, oh, but also a kind of fluidity. The but, a, but, a flu- right. but there's a fluidity to it, right? Yeah. Where the sexuality flows from character to character in quite a, an unusual way for from a... one room
1: to the other in that. Yeah, 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 <laughs> but in,
2: in a male or female writer. Mm. You know, if you read, and we're going to talk about some of these other writers, but if you talk about B.S. Johnson, who is often yeah. mentioned in The Same Breath as Quinn, B.S. Johnson is much more buttoned up.
3: That kind of definition is often a negative definition because, right. I mean, they were all writing... It, Experimentally in the 60s, but they were, it was extremely varied what yeah. they did.
2: I know, and it's, it's, it's think of
3: something like Christine Brooke Rose and yeah. Anne Quinn, you know. It's well,
2: we, I'm absolutely. just going to read this, Jennifer. You were on a very interesting discussion program with Jonathan Coe and Juliette Jakes, where you were talking about this famous list, this accidental canon mm. that B.S. <laughs> Johnson created when he was writing the forward to his collection. Aren't you rather young to be writing your memoirs, yeah. I'd quite like to look at this list of authors. Mm. He says, "...only when one has some contact with a continental European tradition of the avant-garde does one realise just how stultifyingly Philistine is the general book culture of this country." Compared with the writers of romance's thrillers and the bent but so-called straight novel, there are not many who are writing as though it mattered, as though they meant it, as though they meant it to matter. Perhaps I should nod here to Samuel Beckett, of course, John Berger, Christine Brooke Rose, Bridget Brophy, Anthony Burgess, Alan Burns, Angela Carter, Eva Feige's Giles Gordon, Wilson Harris, Rainer Heppenstall, even hasty muddled Robert Nye. <laughs> 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 Cheers, says Robert Nye. And Quinn, Penelope Shuttle. Have you read no. anything by Penelope Shuttle? That's the name that's written. No. no. Me neither. But Giles Gordon. Alan mm. Silito for his last book only. Mm. Raw material indeed. <laughs> Stefan Thomason. And, coming John Huiwei, stand by, and if only Heathcote Williams would write a novel. Anyone who imagines himself or herself slighted by not being included above can fill in his or her name here. (laughs) It would be a courtesy, however, to let me know his or her qualifications for so imagining.
3: You know, yeah, I mean, B.S. Johnson's trying to artificially construct a British avant-garde, yeah, right? Yeah. That was never going to happen. That was basically a list of writers that he liked. And, and in fairness. <laughs> Nothing wrong it, with that. It, I mean, wrong and with that, some so. of them were his mates as well. And, and in fairness, you know, they all shared this kind of experimental spirit. But as we've said, their methods and their strategies were so diverse. And besides which, there was never going to be a British avant-garde in this, the way that there was a French avant-garde, you know, around the same time. That was just ne- that wasn't going to happen here.
2: Why? Why?
3: Why? <laughs> um. Because uh, this
2: cuts to the heart
1: of it, I yeah. think. It
3: does cut to the heart of it. It does cut to the heart of no, it. No,
1: Nouveau R- R- Rob Grier style. Movie. No.
3: There was, Helen Sissou wrote about this tendency as a kind of agglomeration, as a grouping, and kind of called it the British Nouveau Roman, you know. Why didn't it happen here? I don't know. I've been thinking about that question for, like, as long as I've been interested in these chaps.
2: When you were talking about this, mm. Jen, and that idea of why in the 60s, Pop culture is what's happening. So, yeah. so pop music is exploding, and film is exploding, and poetry—even poetry—is that we exactly. can think of more poetry yeah. than we can think of exactly. fiction. Right? Yeah. And then I thought, wait a minute. Now I seem to remember. I, about a year and a half ago, I read "Revolt into Style" by George Melly, uh-huh. the great "Revolt into Style." Mm-hmm. And there's a, only a short chapter about what he calls yeah. pop literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was thinking oh, something rang a bell, and it's just this phrase really stuck in my mind. Although pop culture tends to despise the printed word, recognising it quite correctly as the centre stone of the arch of traditional culture, mm. there is nevertheless a growing body of work related to pop, and although most of this has been already mentioned in context somewhere in this book, it would be illogical to ignore it here. And he talks about... And here are the books for, for the backlisted mm. episodes. Let's rack them up if we haven't done them already. <laughs> Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes. Sean Hignett's A Picture to Hang on the Wall. Anyone heard of that? No, never read that. Tom Key's All Night Stand. Mm,
3: no.
2: And then he talks about Jeff Nuttall and bomb yeah, culture. Bomb now, culture, bomb culture yeah. is a massive book. Yeah. Yeah. Utterly forgotten yeah. now. But that idea of literature as something that self-consciously Experimental literature yeah. allied itself with Europe, with France, yeah. despised America to yeah. some extent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That what mm. pop music does and pop art and film does, literature yeah. is very reluctant to to engage with. Mm. But that doesn't matter now. That's no, the no, point no, that's I'm making. 50 years on, mm. yeah. we're looking at these people and thinking, okay, well, they're, they're, they have a different kind of integrity yeah. from that period.
3: But do you know what? None of this is about why... These aren't arguments to do with why they didn't form an avant-garde. These are arguments to do with how they've been perceived since and at the time, right? Because there are reasons why they didn't have as much of a legacy, right? To do with, I think, um I would say, the particular ways in which the kind of role that the novel performs in British culture, right? It's yeah. a kind of soft nationalism. We ask that the novel does soft <laughs> nationalism for us, right? I would say. Mm, mm, That's mm. what we ask of our, of our fiction. And... They're not doing that. Unless they're, it's they're,
1: genre, isn't it? You exactly, get, that's like, why you know, you're allowed to get away with a like good Robin, stuff. Robin Cook, you know, writes sort of, you know, And then he turns into Derek Raymond and can write kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. he can get away with writing avant-garde French novels by making them detective yeah. stories.
3: but think of Georgie Ballard. Yeah. Again, yeah. But, but what we ask for in our, in our literary fiction is a form of soft nationalism, which these guys aren't doing. They're cosmopolitan, they're outward looking, they're strange, they're weird. And, and that's, that's the reason for the perception. But that's not the same thing as why these these writers didn't band together as a united avant-garde. No. That is a, is a, is a different and, and slightly more difficult question that I've never quite got to the bottom of. Yeah.
2: And yet at the same time with Berg, one of the things I really liked about Berg is it does take the CD boarding house <laughs> novel of Patrick yeah. Hamilton or Graham Greene, totally. chop it up into bits and put it back together yeah, in a yeah. totally different shape, right? Yeah. That it has the Brighton connection as well. Graham Greene, who said of Patrick Hamilton that Hangover Square was the best novel about Brighton. I think it's Hangover Square, isn't it? Help me out, somebody. Yes, it yeah. is Hangover Square.
3: It's no accident that Quinn found herself... Writing about the seaside, right? You know, Qu- Quinn's novels are so often to do with the kind of desperate and always sort of in the end, never going to happen search for freedom, you know, the limits of human freedom. Mm. And, you know, they're, they're always fueled by a kind of dissatisfaction with everyday life, with, with, quiti- yeah. with the quotidian, with the everyday. And, you know, the way that the seaside functions in British culture, it's where we cast off our inhibitions, yeah. you know, it's where, it's where we yeah. have a, like a, you know,
2: Escape.
3: a little bit of what we fancy for a minute. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but, only, yeah. a but it's only a
1: minute but only a minute yeah.
3: of course because we're
1: british uh, it's, it's <laughs> i just if you've got you set yourself the task okay of taking a character out of a room and having them walk across a park mm. I, it's not this is not, this is not the showiest, but just just if you're trying to teach people how do you take a situation which is and i'm always you know i, I love that Martin Amos needs to have more. As Kingsley said, he needs to have more sentences. Like they finished their drinks and left. But this is as far away. This is as far away.
0: This
1: is this is Berg leaving Judith, who is his, his father's lover and his own lover. Spoiler alert. Judith straightened up wiping her hands on the plastic apron with its large printed roses, smoothed her dress down that met the knees, which, like swollen suns, swivelled round the dimples Mm. that were knotted mouths behind their twisted stocking seams. He closed the door before she could say anything more, and for a time he remained on the landing, breathing deeply, as though he had just emerged from a wide but shallow pool. Crossing the park, a subterranean world surreptitiously risen. Here, a million starfish pinned on the forelocks of a hundred unicorns driven by furious witches, a transformation that held itself occasionally in suspense. But for how long would it be like this? Even as Berg made his way, the wind shifted the snow between the trees, leaving divisions as in a map. At times the snow came practically up to his knees, compelling him to clutch the branches in order to gain higher ground. At one point, a light flashed through the semi-darkness, straight into his eyes, then out again, as though a photograph had been taken. He stopped, anticipating its reappearance, maybe only a space between the trees, perhaps even the sun. Another flash, then out, fixed, developed for all time, imprinted on newspapers, magazines, condemned, judged, or worse, dismissed. This was the man, read all about the strange life of one who never returned.
3: Yeah,
1: that's I an mean, amazing passage, that one. I just one. think... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those ones you... Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a, an amazement to me that, that it's taken until now, maybe, for the full uh, power of her work to be recognised. But
2: also, in the unlikely history of the neglect of the novel Berg, Berg... Was made into a film. Oh. This is from the
3: sublime to the ridiculous. Now it was made into
2: a film ow, in, 19- in nineteen eighty nine. Jenna's brought with her the, the film edition.
3: Yeah, I'm now displaying it.
2: <laughs> so it was it was made into a film called Killing Dad, which I remember. I remember that film oh coming God, out. Yeah. Killing Did Dad, starring Richard yes. E. Grant, yes, Denham okay, Elliott, yes. and Julie Walters. And I tried to find a copy in advance of this. I could not find a copy to watch. You, Jen, you were saying to me you've never seen it.
3: I don't dare uh, watch it. I can't watch it. I won't watch it.
2: <laughs> so I was looking up about this film, John, and I found this thing, right, which has made me laugh so much. I, looked, so I was looking on Amazon, and there's, there's uh, several reviews, and there's a one-star review from a Mr. J. Ford spelt... F. F. O. R. D. E. And I was thinking, J. It's an unusual name. Is it not Jasper Ford? Is <laughs> it the best-selling novelist Jasper Ford? So, so I looked up the Wikipedia page of the best-selling novelist Jasper Ford. And it is Jasper Ford. Jasper Ford left a one-star review of the film Killing Dad, and I'm going to read it to you. Right? He will not... I don't know him. If he ever hears this, he probably won't want to be outed. It's worth a look, though, for some of his other reviews. Hi,
0: Jasper. (laughs) Yeah, hi, Jasper.
2: Anyway, this is what he says about the film Killing Dad, the adaptation of Berg. Quote, I worked on this film as a focus puller in 1989. My twin daughters had just been born, and I was very tired, so the shooting was a sleep-deprived haze. I bought the video to see how it all turned out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if
2: you want to dissuade someone from moving to South End, show them this film. <laughs> so that's, that's amazing. Other other reviewers are more generous
3: than that. Oh. During her life, Quinn... Uh, Quinn's books were optioned by by like Roman polanski and people like that they were at, at the time there was an interest it never quite came off
1: and she, but, but she sold didn't she she sold at uh, foreign editions i mean yeah. Berg was published in, in French
3: of, yeah
1: and French
2: and I think German and I mean
1: and
3: uh, Dutch as well I think yeah. yeah
2: is it hard to tell now uh, if you try and reconstruct mm. this how popular or respected she was in her lifetime or towards the end of her life I mean, I I don't have much sense of that if she Um, was, you know, the fact that she's in a list of names in the year of her death by B.S. Johnson.
3: If you go back and read the reviews that were appearing at the time, so you get a sense of uh, someone whose star kind of rose with the publication of Berg and there was, you know, a fair amount of interest in the literary press and in the broadsheets. And then it gradually sort of dipped and then went, went away. Um, mm. the, 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 kind of, the kind of critical interest in her, in her fell away. But in, the, in fairness, she was in the States. She was having, she was gallivanting around, living in communes and, you know, <laughs> and the under, the, under the bridge in San Francisco. And she was having a fantastic time, it, but she wasn't, she wasn't engaged with literary culture here. She was going to the Berkeley Poetry Congress.
1: Right, I mean, my question, having looked at all this, is that surely Anne Quinn needs a biography. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting life.
3: Yeah, it's a fully interesting life. Surely,
1: it? surely, Jen, you are the person to write Well, that thank life. you very
3: much for saying that, John. As Switch. a matter of fact, that happens to be the, the next project I have planned. I would like to, to write the biography. I think it's a it's a fascinating life. Let's talk later. Okay, great.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, well, we could, we could go on um, and probably will after this, but uh, we have to stop now. Um, now, we've got a new innovation at the end of this episode, which I'm going to do <laughs> quickly. Uh, the, the idea is that I'm going to pick an unbound project uh, to commend to you backlisted listeners at the end of at the end of each podcast, so the one I'm going to commend this week is The Hidden Matrix, Myth and the Human Mind by Neil Philip Neil's one of our leading historians of myth, uh, it's a huge very ambitious book, uh, he's like a kind of modern Cusorbon, writing the key to all mythologies, his argument Poor is man. that far from being redundant, myth is in fact the factory preset of human consciousness and you don't need to trust me on it philip pullman says i can hardly think of anything more important so if you want to pledge for that or any of the other 354 unbound pod projects currently live on the site you can dear listeners get a free postage on your pledge just put in the code when you check out quinn q u i n
0: <laughs>
1: amazing <laughs> there you go
2: wasn't so that's what mean. she might have wanted. <laughs>
1: <Just> <laughs> no, what she have wanted. I'm sure. <laughs> Free postage. <laughs>
2: Thank you, John. Thank you to uh, Jennifer Hodgson and to our new producer, Cycling Mickey Perch. Thank you, Mickey. And uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at BatlistedPod. Uh, on Facebook at Backlisted Podcast and on Unbound's online magazine Boundless at unbound.com forward slash Boundless. Also, if you felt like rating us on iTunes with the appropriate number of stars five, we'd be <laughs> we'd be we'd be modestly pleased if you did that. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in, a, in
1: another show in a fortnight. Until then, good night. And I have to add.
2: The Penelope Shuttle is alive and well and living in Falmouth.
0: <laughs>
2: you can choose to listen to Batlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash backlisted where you also get bonus content of two episodes of locklisted the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks